Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. When we sit like this as a group, I just want to keep going, I feel like. It's better than anything I could say. So, uh, yesterday we sat for 15 minutes. Uh, today we sat for 20 minutes. And tomorrow we'll sit for 30 minutes. And um, on Friday we'll just sit the whole day. I think that would be logical. In some strange exponential way. <clears throat> So, we open up our ears, and I think everybody can feel how, after three hours of asana practice, it's quite easy to sit and get still. It actually feels like exactly what you should do. Um, we open up the ears, the spine is in its natural four-curved length, and then we feel our breathing. <coughs> with some fine-tuning of the fingertips and the tongue very quiet and we just feel the breath just feel the breath and depending on your constitution there are two different things that tend to happen in meditation practice and my opinion is this really depends on people's brains some people, or genetics some people naturally get concentrated in a way where the breath starts getting so quiet that the mind that, that, that the input coming in to the mind stops okay so the flow so the mind is open and the flow stops this just happens naturally for some people and for some people the opposite happens which is the flow keeps going, but the mind stops. And this is just uh, inclination, depending on your samskaras or whatever. Um, but those are sort of two different directions than people's meditation practice takes. Some is it gets very, very quiet, and the input just doesn't get um, turned into anything. And so the input, you don't become aware so much anymore of the input of the wind and so on. It's just not there. And for other people, the flow, you still stay aware of the flow, but the reactivity of the mind starts to stop. And this is always temporary. So this will happen for like 20 seconds. And then the storyteller will come back in and go, oh my god, this is so amazing, or this is so terrible, or whatever. And then you have to start all the way back at the beginning again. So to understand that, that these, these, these states of concentration that starts to develop are impermanent, which is why we need to train. And I hope that everybody, when they sit still, feels humbled by how poor our skills are for working with mental states just simply by how caught up we get and that's why coming back to this idea of sitting in a theater 20 rows back and knowing that what you're watching is a film as opposed to totally identifying with it is really really important Does this, is this making sense to you a little bit? yeah What's that? To understand what the difference is. Yeah. 
be aware of where our mind is taking us? Not so much be aware of where your mind is taking you, but just to be aware that your mind has taken you somewhere. But being aware of what your mind has taken you to is completely uninteresting. Yeah. Sorry, psychotherapists. But like what you get interested in is not interesting. Not as interesting as therapists make you think. Sorry. So, um, the other thing that I haven't mentioned yet that's worth mentioning is that uh, it's so great to do this with other people. It is so nice to sit with other human beings. And um, when you sit with others, you really feel the sincerity of everybody together. And I think it helps us develop kindness and less self-centeredness. Because sometimes when you get really quiet, one of the things you become aware of is just everybody else also sitting with you, which is really lovely. Um, and then you uh, begin to trust yourself more. Because in a way, we all trusted ourselves once. We were more in touch with uh, our dignity and beauty when we were small, and somehow we forgot. Does everybody forget? And then one of the things about training is you, you are able to remember again. You're able to come back again. And even if your technique is not very good, most people, when the meditation ends, they feel connected to themselves again in a way that maybe they've forgotten since before they went to school. So that's why I think it's so important that school teachers meditate because then they embody in the classroom the dignity of this practice. So school teachers are always asking me, can you give me techniques of meditation to teach to my kids in the classroom? And I always say, first just you sit, <laughs> you practice, because if you embody it, you will model it via unconscious communication in the classroom. So this is important for all of us. Um, <clears throat> so yesterday, we started looking at this 15th century text called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Um, the takeaway from yesterday is that if you practice in terms of your relationship with consumption. How you eat, how much you eat, um, how you relate to your body. Are you consuming external ideas about the body, for example? Then you will start to have a more light feeling in your body. And my interpretation of that yesterday was not that you will feel lighter in your body in terms of losing five pounds, but that you will relate less to an image of the body and you will experience more your own embodiment. Your, your life, how your life is occurring, not somebody else's life. Um, then um, the Pradipika, which I'm not going to read now because I want to keep going, but the Pradipika then says, then you should practice ethics. And one of the core ethics that we should practice is not having the intention to cause harm. All of us. So that noticing our experience, and, and this is, I think, one of the biggest things that changes in your life when you meditate, is that you start becoming more aware of your intentions when you make choices. There's more space in your mind. So you start to see not just what you do, but like the intention behind what you do. Do you know that? Everybody has that. You, know, you start to get that when you have a practice. Become more aware of your intentions. And then the text doesn't then go into any more discussion about ethics. It jumps right into asana which is what we're going to look at, page 26. 
Um, but I think it's important to understand and just to see that starting to get into the practice of asana happens after one pays close attention to food, one has a safe space to practice in, made of cow dung, preferably, and no stones, which I always like because my last name is Stone. I always like There shouldn't be any stone around. And then, um, lastly, um, having some awareness of the intentions in your actions. And then once all that's happening, the next thing one does is we start to work with our body. Now, uh, a scholar whose work I really enjoy is a guy named Sir James Mallison. Um, He's a young scholar practitioner. And um, one of the things that his research shows is that there is no tradition of sequences in yoga postures. That... um, Sequences in yoga postures is, a, is kind of a new phenomenon. That yogis didn't actually have specific sequences. It was quite spontaneous. And that it's really only in the last couple of centuries that sequences have kind of come into being in terms of practice, which is kind of interesting. Um, I'll get into that more maybe as the week goes on. But here is a description of some practices. So he jumps right in, or she jumps right in, whoever this author is, with the first pose, which is swastikasana. So, um, asana is a seat, um, and swastika is uh, a form. Uh, uh, Su means good, Um, asti means being and ka is an intensifier so uh, one translation of of swastika is um, uh, a a lucky being a lucky being or a good being a good way of being and um, some of you might know that there was a uh, king at the time of the Buddha named King Ashoka and um, I won't tell you his whole story but he was a, a murderer he was a, a king who committed incredible war crimes and eventually after meeting the Buddha he decided uh, not to use his energy in this way anymore and he was the first person in the Buddha's community to become vegetarian The Buddha was not vegetarian, and the Buddha didn't promote vegetarianism, but Ashoka did. And he was also still a little bit egotistical, and he built columns that are called Ashokan columns, with teachings on the columns all over uh, the place. So it was almost like, you know, somebody wants to build a temple, but they name it after themselves. Um, Anyways, the language that was born around that time, a Shokan language, the, 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 if you wrote out the word swastika, the image of the characters creates the image of the swastika that we all know, which is where that comes from. Which, as many of you know, Hitler spun in the opposite direction. So it's a very, very old uh, image. And um, a pose is named after this image, which is considered a lucky, auspicious image. Not anymore, maybe. Um, But uh, the practice is you take one thigh. We can all try all these together. And you can either put your opposite foot on the floor, like this, so that both legs are stable. Or you can tuck the top foot into the calf muscle, which is nice because it keeps it warm. Um, And then you can either put your hands in your hip creases like this, or you can sit on your hands. And this is called swastika. This is the the posture. So this is one way to sit, which is a really nice way to sit. And you can feel that 
you'd be kind of lucky if you could do this, this pose. It feels quite nice. So this is the first asana. Not so sweaty, is it? Yeah. Um, the second asana that's recommended um, is gomukasana. Gomuka is a cow. So you take your left knee and point it forward, and you take your right knee and put it on top of your left knee. It can't quite go exactly on top, but you can get pretty close. And it's said that in this pose, your knees make the shape of the face of a cow. It, for me, it's a bit of a stretch, but... <laughs> so, this is, this is cow face pose. Is everybody trying this? Um, the next pose has two ways of practicing it. Uh, one is, you take one leg and pull it in, and put one foot on the opposite thigh. Or, you put both shin bones on the floor. Like so. And this is called Vira Asana. Vira is what? It's a hero. Yeah. So this is called hero's pose. <clears throat> um, it goes on. Kurmasana. Is everybody familiar with Kurmasana? It's another sitting pose. Yeah, it's not the same karmasana that you get in Ashtanga Yoga. But um, there are a few Ashtanga poses that are described here. Kukutasana is one of them. A rooster. Does everybody know Kukutasana? No? Okay. The way it's described in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika is so. Uh, one foot on one thigh, one foot on the opposite thigh. In Ashtanga Yoga, we put our hands through the middle here, but it's not how it's described in Hatha Yoga. And then you push up, like so, and lift your feet. And this is a rooster. Because it looks a lot like a rooster, doesn't it? <laughs> um, Uttana Karmasana is when you do the same thing, but... You catch hold of your face, which I'm not going to... I've eaten lunch, so I'm not going to do. But I think all of you know that. In Ashtanga Yoga, you put your hands through your legs, and you catch hold of your face. Does everybody know this pose? Yeah. Um, in Ashtanga Yoga, that pose is interesting because it comes in the middle of the primary series. So, we've been critiquing Ashtanga Yoga a lot. But one of the beautiful things about the sequence of the primary series of Ashtanga Yoga is it starts with very, very big movements, right? And as the pose comes towards the middle, it gets very, very small. And it gets smaller and smaller, and the middle pose of the primary series is this pose, which people also sometimes do like this, right? And then, right in the middle, you drop your head and then you roll on your spine nine times to represent nine months. And then, after you roll in a circle for nine months, you come up like a rooster because you've been reborn as a rooster, which is probably better than whatever suffering you're in now. Um, and then, if you know the sequence, then everything starts getting bigger again. Right? And then you're like taking your leg out to the side. So it's kind of a nice image that the center of the primary series is this rebirth that happens. So then after that, Danyarasana. Danyara is a bow. Does everybody know that, that asana? Do I have to demonstrate it? Okay. Did we do it this morning? No. I don't think so. Yeah, so you're lying on your you're lying on the front body. You're touching hold of your legs like so. Very good after lunch, sort of. Um, 
Matsuyasana is kind of the fish pose that we did this morning, except it's done in lotus. So first the legs are brought into lotus, you catch hold of your feet, and then you come up into the fish pose. Pashimatana is the same as Pashimatanasana, which is a western facing forward bend. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, so, so the front of your body is the east, and the back of your body is the west. So the right is. The front is the east. The right side is the south. And the left side is the north. So the reason why it's called Pashimottanasana, which everybody translates as forward bending, is just what it really means is that you're stretching the west side of your body. Okay? And then another pose I'm not going to demonstrate after lunch. Mayurasana. Mayura is... Catherine taught us half the pose today. A peacock. Yeah. So you actually take your elbows into your stomach, and then you turn your wrists this way, and then you balance, and then you straighten your legs and lift them. Yeah. Um, I was talking about my friend Matthew Remsky. One of my favorite things in his house is in his living room, he has a big photograph of Pierre Trudeau doing Mayurasana <laughs> at his cottage. <laughs> it's a beautiful photograph. Um, and here's how it's described. Place the palm of both hands on the ground. Place the navel on the elbows. And balancing like this so that your body is stretched backwards like a stick. And this is called Mayurasana. Then it said, this asana destroys diseases, removes abdominal disorders, and also those arising from irregularities of phlegm, bile, and wind. It helps digest unwholesome food that's been taken in excess. Has anyone taken unwholesome food in excess <laughs> this week? Have you ever done this before? Yeah. This is like this theme in the text, like, just in case you ejaculate by accident. <laughs> After we told you not to take unwholesome food, just in case, then you should do Mayurasana. And actually, this is true. Because if you're bloated, that pose is impossible. Um, it increases your appetite, and it destroys the most deadly poison. And then, it doesn't say what the poison is. So what's the most deadly poison? What's the most deadly poison? Delusion? Greed. What's that? Greed. Greed. <coughs> What's that? Negativity. Negativity. Yeah, we're going to get to it tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow we get into what the. Uh... But you know we all have poison, don't we? Uh, the po the poison. Some of you know this from chanting. Is called hala hala, and it's said that we've all swallowed the poisonous herb, hala hala of samsara. The word samsara literally means to go around in a circle. And even though academics don't like this, the way I translated it in my first book, well, I translated samsara as meaninglessness. Because I actually think the experience of samsara, of going around in a circle, is experiencing your life as not having meaning. Which is another way of talking about addiction. And we've all swallowed this herb. We don't all know exactly how it happened. But we've swallowed this herb of doing things in circles that eventually creates meaninglessness. Oh, I've given away the deadly poison that I was going to do tomorrow. So this is the deadly poison of hala hala. 
For those of you who chant the Ashtanga chant, the best part about it is it says that hala hala is jangali kayamane, which means the poisonous herb of samsara is a jungle physician. So this is like homeopathy 101, which is that the very thing that you're caught in that spins you in circles in a jungle, meaning it's hard to get out, is actually a physician. In other words, the very thing that you've swallowed that keeps you in cycles of addiction is actually what's most healing. Because think about it, what brought you here today? If I asked you deeply what brought you here, it's some kind of curiosity related to how you're suffering. Right? We want to learn some tools to work with the ways that we're caught in habits. You see? And the very habits themselves become the teachers. And that's true whether you're talking about addiction to a drug or whether you're talking about repetitive injuries that happen in your shoulder joints. And you hear teachers say this all the time, oh, an injury, that's a blessing. I have this little joke with Catherine that I've never had a yoga injury before. I've never been injured in yoga practice. I've only been injured at the gym. (laughs) Three times now. So, anyways. More on that later. <clears throat> um, can we keep going? Yeah. Then, uh, my favorite pose, which I feel like never gets taught, Shavasana. The corpse pose. <clears throat> so, um, There are 84 poses, if you do the math, and I think Shavasana is the most important. Um, Although Patabi Joyce used to say there are 84,000 poses. In the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there are 84. Um, So first, my methodology with corpse pose which is that all of these practices are teaching us how to open up to our life with more and more sincerity so that as our reactivity starts decreasing the things in our life find their place and I don't know if you notice this but when you do work on the inside things on the outside change have you seen this? Like, let's say in your family there's some tension around an issue. You really do work on your reactivity, and you help de-escalate the tension around an issue. This is the most fascinating thing ever, I think. And some of it is obvious, and something about it sometimes is mysterious. That when you do your inner work, it creates ripples that you can't always understand in your life. Because inside and outside really are not so distinguishable. So, we need to be able to stay in our seat. And my understanding of the word asana is sitting with our experience, or sitting in the middle of our experience. So what is an asana, which literally means to sit, An asana is the seat that you take in the middle of the present moment. The ability to really be there in the moment. And we miss it all the time. Don't you miss it? So, when we say we practice asana, It means we're training in the ability to sit with what's happening in our moment-to-moment experience. This is called asana practice. So when you say to someone, I'm a yogi, I do asana practice, that means you're training in the ability to sit in your experience with whatever is arising 
without holding on to it. That means when something really beautiful happens, you don't hold on to it. We should all try this. When you see a beautiful house on your street, you should really appreciate its beauty and not need to have it for yourself. And then you can appreciate it even more because there's no grasping around it. Or maybe you see a beautiful person. Right? It's almost springtime, sort of. When is spring going to come? I don't know. One day spring will come. And then, do you know the thing that happens in the city? It's like a Friday afternoon and it's the first really warm day and everyone's so happy and you look around and everyone looks gorgeous. Do you, do you have this experience? Yeah. And every, it's like the first time you see skin after like six months, right? Someone has short sleeves and everything is like budding and beautiful. And then how do you take in all this beauty without needing to have it? Right? Oh, there's a beautiful person. There's another beautiful person. Just to notice this and not need to do anything about it. So this is what the yogi does. Because the secret of yoga is that the pleasure of not grasping is greater than the pleasure of fulfillment. So the pleasure you think you can get from an object is not as pleasurable as the pleasure of letting go of an object. I know you don't believe this, but it's true. So it's like, you can have a piece of chocolate and it's very, very pleasurable. And then you can grab another piece of chocolate, but it's not as pleasurable. And you keep going for the chocolate and there's diminishing pleasure. And then you can't do mayurasana. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but to have one piece of chocolate and to appreciate the chocolate and let go of the craving of needing more chocolate is more pleasurable and more satisfying than trying to get the next piece of chocolate. That's the secret to yoga. It's a secret to yoga. So, because our lives are built this way of always craving more pleasure, or, and this is also interesting, another craving that I think we don't recognize often is the craving of non-existence. So we always think of craving as craving more of existence, but sometimes one of the things we crave is to not exist. So one end of that is suicide, but in the spectrum of suicide, there's also dissociation, there's numbing out on YouTube, there's overeating, there's so many ways, undereating, right? There's so many ways we try and manipulate our experience so that we don't feel our existence. And I think one of the places you see this a lot is cutting, right? Because when you cut yourself, you're taking an invisible pain that you can't formulate and you're creating a physical thing with it. So cutting is actually a way of creating existence when there's a feeling of non-existence. And then the opposite is true also, which is that there can be so much pain that you just don't want to exist in this moment. You see? So one of the reasons why we're working with our minds is to see this toggling that happens all the time is craving for more existence and craving for no existence. Can you relate to this a little bit? We all do this in different ways. So this brings us to corpse pose, which is the last thing we'll talk about today, which is we lie down, and the first phase of corpse pose is to feel gravity. That's the first phase. So you're disorganizing the tension in your body so that you can notice what areas of the body are resisting gravity? And I like to visualize that the floor is rising up to support the body. 
phase one. Corpse pose, phase two, is then to bring your awareness to your abdomen, like we do in mindfulness of breathing, and feel the breath until we can trust that the body is breathing, but I'm not breathing. Did anybody have a taste of this yesterday or today? Yeah? Could you, can anybody describe it? Try to describe it. It felt like a bit of a disconnect, but it felt nice. Yeah. Like, I mean, it was just the physical, the brain was totally out of it. But uh-huh. unfortunately, it took like 15 seconds, then the brain took over. Okay, so 15 seconds but, at but least. it was very nice. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, but it was so nice. Yeah. Or you can just feel... So the word for the breathing, as some of you know, is vayu, which is the same word for wind. So you can feel that you're giving your breath back to the wind. And this is the attitude of the yogi in relationship to death. Is that we always think that death is life being taken away from me. Capital M, me. But actually, for the yogi, we start to see that death is a practice of generosity. Where you're taking the elements and giving them back to life. Because when you die, you die into life. You don't die outside of life. You die back into life again. When I, I, I started doing these retreats, some of you know, with a rabbi and teaching Jewish people. And when you teach Jewish people, you have to talk about God. And like, I don't talk about God that much. So I've had to like figure out how to talk about meditation in terms of God. So what I say to Jewish people is, when you are born and you inhale, that's God exhaling. And when you die, on an exhale, that's God inhaling the breath back again. So when you're breathing, every time you exhale, God is inhaling. And every time you inhale, God is exhaling. And they're like totally on board. You just, they're like glued to the, oh yeah, of course, God is doing the thing. And then like, this is how you get Jews on your side. This is the secret, yeah. And you feed them also. Yeah. You could do it with Christians too, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's positive, it's all positive. Exactly. So, um, when somebody's dying, one of the meditation techniques you give them is first just letting the breath be natural so you're teaching them how to be generous and give their breathing away. And this is really good because most of us, one of the problems that we have in our day-to-day life is that we can't forgive people. We can't forgive ourselves and we can't forgive other people. So the problem with giving your breath away is that if you have this attitude in the mind of like trying to hold things always to yourself, it doesn't work so well for dying. Because you have to give every, everything's being taken anyways. So instead, we, we, we switch the attitude and we just give our breathing away. And that's what we've been working on the last two days in Corpse Pose. So, can we keep going a little bit? So the next phase after you get the hang of that is you switch from noticing your breathing in your belly to noticing it at the aperture of your nostrils. So you notice your breath just at the aperture of your nostrils. And the thing about noticing your breath at the aperture of your nostrils is that there's very little sensation. It's very subtle. You can even try it right now as I'm talking. Just. You can feel your breath right on the outside of your nostrils.
And so the belly stops moving so much, and now you're aware of the breath outside of the body. We're going to work on that tomorrow. Then once you can do that, you bring awareness to your breath on your upper lip. So now it's even further from your nostrils. And then once you can do that, you bring your attention to the breath 12 finger lengths. Let's try it. 5, 10, plus 2, it's 12. 12 finger lengths away from your upper lip. And then in the corpse pose, you lie down, and you can feel this. You can feel your breath right there. It's really interesting. So now, you're not, you're not in your body anymore. You're noticing the breath outside of the body. Anyways, this keeps going. I'm not going to get into it. But that's enough to work on for a couple of years. <laughs> is starting to notice the breath now not in your body. And this is where yogis make their heart stop. Because the breath's not in your body anymore. Yeah. So you have to make sure if you practice this that you have your will all set up. Because if you do it well, you might die. This is true. I've had a lot of students die in course pose over the years. Few, few a year is the rate these days. Just, they just don't get up in the corpse pose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, that's what happens with the corpse pose. Are you getting the idea of how to practice corpse pose? Yeah. So there's this letting go that happens, this letting go that happens. Then the best part is then the teacher says, okay, deepen your inhale. And then you bring it all back in your body and you get up again, but you get up with a little bit less clinging. And some more perspective about what's important. And I feel like if you're ever in a place in your life where you have to make some big life decisions, you should practice corpse pose often, a couple times a day. Not that the decision will come to you, but that when you get up, there'll be more clarity around how to make a big decision. Because there's a little bit less me ness in it. And through the whole process you're just examining the whole, all the ranges of attitudes that come up as you let go. Like a corpse. And so these are some of the basic asanas that we practice. Gomukasana, Mahirasana, that's interesting. For me, it's nice to know that in the 15th century, people were thinking about this. And that they laid out a map, and that if we study the map, it can help us live our lives now. And so Catherine and I coined this term, new wave of yoga. Kind of like, it was supposed to be like new wave music. right? Like we just ended the punk era of yoga. <laughs> Um, and you know for me part of it was I felt that there was this triangular community between myself and Catherine and uh, Matthew Remsky and one of the things that I felt was really important about talking about a new wave of yoga is more focus on the insights of evidence-based practices and this is true when you're talking about asana practice. It's also true with meditation practice. That there are insights from psychology and neuroscience that we should be integrating into our understanding of meditative practice. And at the same time, which is where Matthew and I disagree, I really think that we should study more deeply the traditional texts because they also create maps that allow us to know what we're talking about when we have this cross-cultural perspective. So we should study these maps, even if we have disagreements, because they help 
us understand the inner life of these practices that we've missed. And I hope that this will help these practices come alive for you also. So that when you leave here on Friday, you'll have real skills to take into your life. Because you don't know how you're going to need to serve. You don't know. You don't know what will be required of you. So you need real skills in letting go of rigidity, in knowing how to give up fixed opinions, in being able to forgive yourself and other people, in how to meet your experience with kindness and less reactivity. These are like the deep skills of peacemaking that are, we desperately need in our society. So, um, any questions or comments? Lana. understanding of the model that I use in terms of thinking about trauma is that trauma is when an event has happened that's come through the sense organs but it hasn't been experienced yet so that all the organs have had an event occur but that the body and mind haven't metabolized the event So the symptoms of trauma are really like events that are looking for a way to be experienced. And so the work of experiencing trauma is to find safe ways of digesting sensory experience that we haven't yet metabolized. And so... Um, if going into the body with your breathing is too overwhelming, then you need to modify the technique so that it's not so focused on the body. So for example, when I'm teaching meditation to people who've had trauma, uh, two things that I do. One is, I always start with mindfulness of sound. So that they're paying attention to sound, so it's not as focused as... It doesn't seem as internal. And the other thing that I do is that when we're doing asana practice, we do all our counting backwards. Because people who have trauma, one thing they really need to know is when something's going to end. So if you're counting a posture, I never go one, two, because they don't know when it's going to end, and it can create a lot of anxiety. So we do everything backwards. So I count five four, three, and this really makes people feel more safe. start because noticing sound which is actually a yoga practice called Naranusandana which is noticing sound without the mind doing anything with the sound that is like you could do that practice forever it's my favorite actually one of my favorite meditation practices just noticing sounds and not being distracted by them just oh these are sounds they're changing And that teaches you all the same stuff as mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. 
with that, because I learned that from you, you know, to start off, to just listen to somebody. Yeah. Is it okay? Sometimes I tell myself, yes, I hear the sound, it's okay. I hear the sound. Is that okay to, to do that while I'm meditating? Yeah. To actually say that to myself? Sure. It's okay to yeah. Oh, there's a sound, yeah. Yeah, good. It really works. Yes. It really does work. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned suffering quite a few times. Yeah. Can you describe it in more detail? What is happening? Yeah. Suffering is not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, being separated from what you love, being in an impermanent body, and being in relationship. In other words, everything. <laughs> but, yeah, but then I would say some of, some of it can be like fake suffering. I think I want something. I don't really want it. That's not real suffering like you lose someone like They're both suffering. If you, get some, if you can't get something you want, there is a distress that is um, a form of suffering. Of this distress can be just being spoiled too much. Absolutely. Because you feel entitled, let's say, right? Because sure. And for one person, that might not be suffering. And for someone else, because of their upbringing or whatever, that might be intense suffering. So any experience where there's pain, distress, being unsatisfied, feeling a sense of lack, um, that's how I'm talking about suffering. Then do you think these techniques would really help towards healing this fake Suffering? I don't, I don't use the term fake suffering. Well, I don't have a better term. You know what I mean. If you're experiencing distress, this is a suffering. To call it fake suffering adds another layer of suffering on top of your suffering. And the Buddha had a name for this, by the way. He called it dukkha dukkha. Have you heard this term? It's like one of my favorite terms he uses. Which is the suffering of not being able to be with your suffering. which is, I think, an epidemic in our culture, which is the suffering of not knowing how to open to suffering. What are you talking about? I'm good. Yeah. It's fine. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, this is a mysterious thing about human beings, some people can live like that. I'm good. I'm good. Everything is good. And it's like, they can get by like that. And other people, they try to do that for a couple months, and then they get like physical symptoms, or like they have a crash, or it's amazing. Like I know people who are just like always good, and you know, even though I can see, it's not really like that. But they just live, you know. And for me, like if I try to be like that, I trip over things and crash the car, and you know, stuff like that. So, so. What we're saying is that yoga practice is teaching us the skills to be open to life. And when life brings suffering, we learn how to embrace suffering without turning away from it. And um, that's, that's the core of this practice. It's the, it's the bottom line of this practice. To be able to turn towards our own suffering and turn towards the suffering of other people. And of course you can't separate those two. Because as you learn how to be with your own suffering, you're more attuned to the suffering of other people. They go together. This is called compassion. So, we will continue on that tomorrow. Yes, let me just watch the time. Oh, we have lots of time. A few more minutes, and then we're going to have a break the for practice. chocolate, chocolate uh, break. That practice, as you're describing it in Shavasana, yeah, yeah, um, is that prachahara? Draw of the senses. Um, sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, pratyahara, which literally means counter grabbing is when the attention starts to get settled 
We've all experienced this in the meditation practice. Your attention settled. When you first start sitting, your ears are like totally obsessed with all the sounds. Like, oh yeah, rock music. Uh, uh, the wind is really intense. I like it, I don't like it, blah, 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 blah. And over time, as your mind settles, you notice that the ears open, but that it doesn't go after the sound. And the nose is open, but it doesn't like look for sense. And that the skin is open, but it doesn't want to feel something or not want to feel something. So the sense organs start to uncouple from the sense objects. Okay? So, so this is called pratyahara, is when the sense organs become less interested in the sense objects. And just like bandhas, it happens completely naturally. But withdrawal of the senses is not a very good translation. Because okay. I've gone through this before. Where I've tried to like, when I was younger, I was like, okay, I'm going to withdraw my nose. Uh. <laughs> and you can't do it. It doesn't make any sense. So it's not so much that with and all yoga teachers are like, yeah, pratyahara is withdrawal of the senses, and then nobody understands that all of what they're talking about. Right. But what is it? It's the natural disinterest between the sense organs and the sense objects. So that, for example, you can walk down a busy road and look at everybody equally. Different body types, different ages, different colors of skin, everybody equally and you're not grabbing anything. That's the test of whether pratyahara works. So, let me know how it goes. Yeah, doing that in the coffee shop is more challenging. Or do it in the coffee shop. <laughs> like food. Or with food, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like if you have espresso from Starbucks. No, that's going too far. Never mind. No <laughs> Grabbing, um, like, dis like desire, desire. No, I just mean that. So you're sitting, noticing sounds, noticing sounds. There's the wind, car going by, right? We're like noticing all these things. And after a while, all of that processing starts to just stop, yeah. and you're just sitting right. and really open. And there's sounds, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. What about bodily and reactivity? That's like the, you know the. In case anyone heard, there was the banging sound. That did the, if I've no, I just was interested in the relationship that I was noticing that I was having, or the body, the reactivity of the yeah. body that isn't that actually seems to be independent or separate from uh, my. My yeah, so there's a biological yeah. reactivity yeah. that you can't really change that much. No. But it does decrease, yes. but the narrative that we add to it is something that we really have control over. And that's the part that's starting to settle. I was, that was the thing that I was questioning was the reactivity itself. Um, Kind of broke it off a little bit yeah. probably. Yeah, and, and, and drishti is how we do this in asana practice, which is that in every pose, we relax the gaze so that you're not looking at anything. You just relax the gaze so that the eyes aren't hungry for images. So in downward dog, you relax the gaze between the ankle bones so the eyes are just open but they're not going after anything. You know? I like a lot looking past my thumb. Like, like when you hold your big toe, you just look past your thumb until your eyes are just open, but they're not registering anything. And this really helps concentrating. It's called drishti. More on that as the weekend goes on. Week goes on. Do you have anything on meditating with the eyes open? Yeah, I think you should meditate with your eyes open. <laughs> We'll probably get to that by the end of the week. For those of you who've sat with me for a while, you know that this is my preference. But we'll get there.
Last question or comment, and then break time. Yes. Prescriptions. There are no prescriptions in time for time, or for how long you need to hold the nationals, or for how long you need to do the corpse pose. No. Amputation <coughs> comes after as a question. Yeah. How long do you need to practice? So the Hatha Yoga Pradipika was based is based on 15 different texts that were popular as the knot sect was remember we talked about the knot sect yesterday who are the split ears with the split cartilage earrings <clears throat> before that time and including the knot sect asanas were considered tapas an ascetic practice so these postures were probably held for very very long periods of time <clears throat> Like, for example, standing on one leg for a very, very long period of time um, as a way of being in the heat of physical sensation. Um, a very common one is to do a lot of these practices in the midday sun surrounded by five fires. <clears throat> so you get into Shirshasana, you get into the headstand with fire all around you in the midday sun, and you would hold it as long as possible. Yeah, and there were lots of accidents. People would fall over and burn themselves. Um, so this was, I mean, this is Tantra Yoga. right? So you'd put yourself in these uncomfortable scenarios to really work with your mind. So when you read this, you should imagine that you get into Gomukhasana and you're going to be there a really long time. Okay. But for meditation, then, which is your... Well, it depends on the context. So if somebody has no kids, um, I always tell them that if you have time to be on any kind of social media, you should be able to have at least one 45-minute meditation practice a day. And if you have four kids, you should follow the story I told you earlier which is that everything you do should be meditation practice. But I'm of the opinion that if you're on Facebook, you can sit for 30 minutes a day. If you're not on Facebook. Are you on any social media site? Then you have time to sit. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to tell you about my, my practice? This is how I practice. I used to wake up early in the morning and sit. Um, but now we have a two-year-old in our bed. And so um, it's impossible to wake up early and go sit because as soon as I go out of the room, uh, he wakes up. So what I've done is I put my meditation cushion beside the bed. Okay. And so I roll out of the bed. <laughs> it's really gross because I don't even brush my teeth or anything. And I roll out of bed and onto the cushion. And then I just sit there until he wakes up. And that's my practice. So there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it. I, I mean, the morning is the ideal time to sit. But if there's another time that's easy for you just because of your schedule, then you should just sit then. But it's really important to work with our minds because most of our problems are not in our hamstrings. They're in our relationships. And most of the troubles in our relationships are because of our projections and our reactivity. So it's really important to work with your mind. Yes? I'm just going to say something really quickly and I brought this book. A neurologist by the name of Dr. Andrew Newberg. Nope. He uh, took um, about 12 patients who had the beginnings of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And because he's a neurologist, he was, he was able to put them all through an MRI machine. Put them through an MRI machine. And at the end of 12 weeks, with 10 minutes of guided meditation every single day, at the end of 12 weeks, they had absolutely no sign of that. got the... MRIs to show here huh. of people with Alzheimer's. The, uh -huh. the, not just the beginning, they were full 
Yes. Great. Well, we have a neurologist who's an expert in this area who you should talk to uh, about exactly this this uh, this area. So. Um, can we have a break? Okay. So thank you very much for listening. Um, let's have a short break, knowing this is the secret that you can't really have a break. Mm-hmm. That, that when we now take a break, you're still practicing with the same kind of open awareness that we've been doing since 9 o'clock. And the trick is, is that if you have this attitude, then after the break, when you come back, it doesn't feel like you're starting to practice again. And then at 9 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't feel like you're starting to practice again. It's a seamless, continuous cycle of practice that has no end. You can never roll up your yoga mat. So, thank you. Thank you.